Welcome to episode 82 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is C.B. Bhattacharya, Chair of Sustainability and Ethics at the University of Pittsburgh and author of Small Actions, Big Difference. C.B. is a world-renowned expert in business strategy innovation. His research and teaching focuses specifically on how companies can use under-leveraged intangible assets such as corporate identity, reputation, corporate social responsibility, and sustainability to strengthen stakeholder relationships, increase social value, and drive firm market value. We also discuss the very interesting term, psychological ownership, a feeling of possession of something that can be less tangible than an object, such as a concept, organization, or mission that doesn't have to be supported by formal ownership. While we discuss the need for individuals to own climate change, I couldn't help but think of COVID-19 and how each person's actions can make a difference. Please take extra care during the holidays. Infections are increasing worldwide, so be careful. And please remember, we're all in this together. While being cautious and alert, please be supportive and kind. And take the time to thank the people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat. I'm here with C.B. Bhattacharya, Chair of Sustainability and Ethics at the University of Pittsburgh, author of Small Actions and Big Differences. C.B., welcome to the Climate Champions. Thank you, Lee. Nice to be here. With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment? When did you decide you had to do something to help? I have been working in this space of sustainability and corporate responsibility for about 25 years now. However, the watershed moment for climate change in particular would be somewhere around 10 to 12 years ago when I was meeting with some folks from the World Wildlife Fund, and I was living in Berlin, Germany at the time. And I heard something about this two-degree challenge. I said, what is this two-degree challenge? They said, well, if the temperatures rise to more than two degrees before pre-industrial levels, then there's all these kind of cataclysmic effects that are going to take place, and we are going to be in deep trouble. So I would point that out when I heard this two-degree warning. That was the moment when I realized that, well, these guys know something that I don't, and I better get on it and focus my research, my teaching, my talks, my dedication to this field to include climate change as a major topic. Other than realizing the effects could be cataclysmic, what are your drivers for engaging? A number of them. First off, I'm an educator, and I want the younger generation to be equipped to deal with climate change. I mean, because it's not something we have seen before. It's an existential threat. 
Second, I'm a parent and I have a son who's 17 years old. And for the sake of his generation, his friends, and hopefully he'll have children and I'll have grandchildren one day. For all of that, for the rest of the inhabitants of the world, I mean, we need to do this. We need to get ahead of the problem. And so if you take both the professional and the personal, and finally the spiritual as well, because you want to do something to help our planet. Ultimately, that is our calling. And whatever it is you can help, I talk about the spheres of influence with everybody, but whatever it is in your sphere of influence you can do, you're supposed to. And so from a normative standpoint as well, I believe that it's my duty to combat climate change. That's pretty awesome. As you were speaking, I was thinking that's why I do what I do. It's driven by mission rather than money. I just want to make a difference because why else are we here if not to help? Right. It's a higher calling. When you meet people that don't believe the data or don't believe there is climate change, how do you convince them that there is? That's a very, very good question, Lee. If you are a flat-out denier and you are completely dismissive of science, it's a very, very hard thing to do. I mean, because all we can point to is the data around us, the events that are happening around us, climate refugees where they're having to flee certain islands that are already kind of getting submerged underwater, droughts, hurricanes, all of that, the temperature records. So in the 21st century, we have had 20 of the 21 years have been the hottest ones on record. I mean, how do you disregard powerful data like that? It's akin to believing in evolution or not. If you don't believe in evolution and you think that there is Adam and Eve and Garden of Eden and that's how it all happened, it's extremely difficult to get them to believe that, <laughs> no, we did come from primates or whatever. So I would not honestly waste my time on those people at this point in time because their numbers are few and far between. And with the change of administration in the United States, I think the numbers will go down even more. Can you talk about what you do at the University of Pittsburgh and also a little bit about your book? Sure. As you kindly mentioned in your introduction, I am the chair in sustainability and ethics. So I'm a chair professor. And as a chair professor, my responsibilities are multifold. So I teach graduate students, MBAs, executive MBA students, working managers, all of them, and PhD students. I do research in the area of corporate sustainability, what companies can do to make their business models more sustainable so that we can actually get ahead of this curve. And finally, I engage in what I would call various forms of thought leadership. So I run a center, so it's called the Center for Sustainable Business, which I direct. And this center was founded last year, and it has several corporate partners today. And I invite your listeners to come and take a look at our website. I actively engage in speaking and doing podcasts of this sort or media interviews and so on. So various forms of thought leadership. I consult with companies who have problems in this area and who would like to address those. Coming to the book, the book was really a culmination of a research effort of five years. And it was an interesting beginning because I was teaching in Berlin, Germany. As I mentioned, I used to live in Berlin, Germany. And I was teaching executives who were coming from these large companies like Siemens or BASF or Lufthansa. And I used to bring up sustainability and climate change and, you know, kind of, hey, these are important things. And so, yeah, 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 they're important, but it's someone else's problem. 
I have more important things to do. Kind of, I have to meet my targets. I have to do whatever I do in my sphere of work. But climate change, no. We have a department, a sustainability department. They take care of that stuff. I mean, you know, this is someone. So this really struck me as an awful disconnect. So if we are facing an existential crisis, how is it that the biggest problem of our time is actually relegated to one department in a company when there are hundreds of thousands of people in these large companies working? So I wanted some answers to that question, and that's what I started out researching. And I researched about 25 multinational companies and had well over 100 interviews with CEOs, C-suite members, and rank-and-file employees, going from Madagascar to China to the streets of London, so all over the place, to learn what companies do to actually engage their workforces in the battle against climate change. And that led to the book, which is called Small Actions, Big Difference. And the idea behind the book is that if every person in an organization participates, takes ownership, so I offer this concept called sustainability ownership. If every individual in an organization takes ownership of sustainability, by which I mean the well-being of the planet and its people, then collectively we can make a much bigger impact. So the difference is large, essentially, because you're multiplying individual actions by hundreds of thousands and millions and so on. And what I do in the book is I unfold a model on how companies can actually go about the process of engaging their entire workforce so that it becomes everyone's problem and not someone else's problem. I heard you speak about the term psychological ownership. Can you give some examples of where you've seen that be effective and what it means? Yeah, so the idea behind psychological ownership is that ownership does not have to be legal or ownership does not have to be physical over physical goods. So you can have ownership over an organization. You can have ownership over an idea like sustainability. So this is what we are trying to promote here that, hey, you can take ownership over sustainability. You can take ownership over your health. I mean, that's also relatively intangible in some terms. We keep working out and we can see the external parameters changing potentially, but we don't really know what's happening internally. But we believe that things are better. When we eat healthy, we believe that, you know, we take ownership of our diet. So these are some examples where the target of ownership could be relatively elusive or at least psychological in nature or not physical in nature, I should say. It's entirely possible that employees can jump into the fray and do this. And research has shown that it actually does work. And when employees take ownership of sustainability, they behave in more sustainable ways in the organization, which was the actual thesis that I was trying to propose. Can you talk about your journey? How did you get to where you are today as a professor and chair? I grew up in India, actually, and I did an MBA with a focus in marketing. And then I worked for a consumer products company and actually have the distinction of marketing a brand of toilet cleaner in the Indian market in the mid-1980s. <laughs> Not a job that lots of people aspire to, but it was fun. I did that for three years, and I'm very happy to say that that toilet cleaning brand is the largest selling toilet cleaning brand by far in India today. <laughs> But after doing that for three years, I came to the Wharton School, the University of Pennsylvania, to do a PhD in marketing. On graduating, I was an assistant professor at Emory University in Atlanta. 
And whilst I was doing that job, I met a gentleman by the name of Ben Cohen. He's the CEO of a company called Ben and Jerry's. So he is the Ben of Ben and Jerry's. He's responsible for many pounds on my body. <laughs> I guess I'm responsible. I have psychological ownership. There you go. <laughs> but delicious nonetheless. <laughs> He asked me a very interesting question. He said, you know, we do a lot of things for the environment. We do a lot of things for society. So we support the rainforest movement. We give our workers a living wage. He said, can you help me understand if what we do for the environment and for society, does it help us sell ice cream? I said, wow, that's a really interesting question because as a marketing person, I'm always thinking about how do we increase sales of a product? But nobody at that time, and this is the mid-1990s, mind you, nobody at that time was thinking about environmental attributes and social attributes as being drivers of sales. So I started noodling on that project, and that problem was like peeling an onion, really, because the answer to the question is really, it depends. Consumer characteristics, industry characteristics, product characteristics, etc. But in doing that, or in trying to address that problem, I just kind of uncovered a whole new field out there and thus began my transition into the area of corporate responsibility. And as I traversed that area, slowly over time, corporate responsibility as a phrase started to wane, I guess, in popularity because people realized that truly what we need is sustainability. We need to survive. I mean, this is a much bigger issue than doing a volunteering gig here or painting a classroom somewhere else or whatever. So, but by then my trajectory was fairly well developed and then the field just took off. So I guess you could say in some sense, I was at the right place at the right time and I took an opportunity and I found it very, very fulfilling. Most people's paths are made because of being at the right place at the right time. Can you talk about setbacks you had in your career? In 2003, when my son was three months old and my wife was still on maternity leave, I was hit by a car as a pedestrian. I was teaching at Boston University at the time. We were living in Boston. And that really was a, <laughs> a serious wake-up call, shall we say, because I've had six surgeries on my two legs. I'm a chronic pain patient. Cannot live a single day without thinking about that particular day which was actually November 20th. So we are just after the 17th anniversary of that day. And all of that goes to provide some perspective again, in terms of what is this about? I mean, what are we doing here? And sooner or later, when you start asking those questions, you find that, you know, again, being in a field that helps other people and that enables other people to facilitate change, make change for the better is probably the only part of life that makes sense in a way. So I would chalk that up as you can call it a setback. I mean, it could be, um, <laughs> a, like I said, a wake up call. It could be a new beginning. I could be just 17 years old today, all of that. But certainly it was a life shaping event. I find that in my life, some of the hardest things end up shaping who I am and because I like who I am and I like my life, I feel like those were critical moments, even though they seemed really bad at the time. Very well said. Yeah, yeah. Very, very well said. I try to tell my kids that when things that are bad happen to them, if they grow from it, then it wasn't necessarily bad from a life perspective. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Entirely agree with that. 
Can you talk about the successes you're most proud of? Let's say accomplishments. Well, I played saxophone on my wife's 50th birthday, you know, in front of a lot of guests. That's like a Bill Clinton thing. Well, you could never be sure if he was really playing it, but I was, that's for sure. I also have a terrible sense of balance, which got totally destroyed because of my accident. So I had to learn how to bike all over again as an adult, and I could do that, which was kind of fulfilling. And all these things that happened professionally, I mean, I, when I started out, I never thought I would be a chair professor in a university, but do those hit me as deeply as being able to be on that bike again or to be able to play that saxophone? I don't know. My son has grown up to be a wonderful young person to the extent that I might have had a <laughs> hand in that, um, positive hand in that. I would certainly think that that's something I'm very, very happy and proud about. But yeah, typically my thoughts go into the personal sphere when I think about these things. Can you talk about a company that you think has done a good job having their employees own sustainability? Yeah. So one of the companies I worked with quite closely is the consumer goods company Unilever, which a lot of folks would know from their brands, Dove, Axe and Knorr and all these consumer product brands, they touch 2.5 billion consumers every day. 2.5 billion? Billion, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's quite a reach, huh? And I worked quite closely with the then CEO of Unilever, Paul Pullman, who is also credited as being one of the chief architects of this idea of a sustainable business model. And the idea of ownership actually came to me when I was touring one of their facilities in India in the middle of absolutely nowhere in well over 100 degree heat. And when I saw in this factory that to a person, to a person, people were doing their part in terms of water usage and conservation efforts and this and that. And when I saw that, okay, I thought about it for, you know, I was there a whole day. And I thought about, okay, what did I just see? What's that idea? You know, what's the concept? And the word that came to my mind was ownership. And I said, wow, so yeah, they really did take ownership. And that's when I went to the literature and I found that I didn't invent that thing in my head. There is actually a concept called psychological ownership in the literature and people have written about it. And so then I thought, well, there seems to be a good match because at Unilever, one of the quotes I have in my book is, don't make any exception. If you have one exception, then everybody thinks they're the exception. So make sustainability everybody's job. That was what the chief sustainability officer Unilever was mentioning at that time. And of course, I have not seen all 160,000 workers, but I may have seen a few hundred. But whatever I've seen in whatever part of the world, they did all to a person take ownership of sustainability. So I would say that that's a good example. When you look ahead 20, 30, 40 years, how do you think the planet is going to do? What's your vision of the future? Well, I'm an eternal optimist, so I believe that we are going to be able to beat this existential crisis. And it'll not be easy. It'll be much, much harder than the pandemic. And we will need all hands on deck to be able to do it, all countries to cooperate, and that's not going to be easy. But it is within mankind's realm of possibility. So I do think that life will continue and 
30, 40 years down the road. I won't be around, but my son and his children will very much be there. We will see a lot more automation in products. So we don't know whether human beings are going to be doing many of the things that they do right now, including giving people haircuts and this and that. But it's possible that people will also have more leisure time because of the automation and the freeing up of resources. And I think overall, there will be more prosperity. There has to be, because if there isn't, then we will, I do believe, destroy one another in fights and so on and so forth. So the social equity part, I think this is our opportunity. This is our moment to act, not just on climate. Climate is closely tied to social justice. I mean, that's the one point I do want to make for your listeners. I mean, climate does not act in isolation because it's the poorest and the most vulnerable who suffer the most from climate change. So one of the things that we've got to work alongside, and I can see 40 years down the road, is that we have a more equitable and just society and much less racism, much less inequality, and all of the things that we are fighting for today. And of course, more moderate temperatures. So I see good things in the future, but it's not going to be easy to get there. You mentioned the pandemic and climate change being more difficult. How do you think the pandemic has affected the fight against climate change? At a minimum, it should have given everybody a wake-up call that climate change is around the corner and that it's a much bigger problem. So in the pandemic, we saw how we were behind the eight ball. Parts of the United States continue to do that. How unprepared we were. And when it came, it filled up the hospitals and killed all these people and so on and so forth. And the pandemic came without warning. In contrast, climate change has been giving us a lot of warnings. So this would be the time to prepare. So I would say that the first thing is the wake up call. The second thing is a sense of the devastation it can create. Climate change is a far more deadly force. It will affect all parts of the world and it will create much more ravage. So maybe people can better estimate the mortality rates and all of these kinds of things. The third thing I think the pandemic shows us about climate change is that it is reversible. So the blue skies that we saw from Beijing to Los Angeles to Delhi, I mean, all that basically showed is that, hey, climate change is man-made. So if we as a collective can scale back our level of activity to be in line with what the Earth's natural parameters allow, then it is indeed possible to stay within that 1.5 degree, 2 degree kind of limit. So that, I think, to me, was a very, very vivid realization that climate change is reversible. So I would point to those three things as a wake-up call, the extent of devastation possible, and the fact that it's reversible. Those are the three big lessons for me. Can you give one piece of advice that people can do to help mitigate climate change? Whatever one can do. So I stand by my book's title, Small Actions, Big Difference. We suffer from a lot of myths in society that, oh, I'm too small to bring any change, to affect any change, or it's too little, too late. To these people, I say, no, those are not the right ways to do things. Jump into it. Whatever it is you can do, you do. That could start by putting off lights. It could start by not printing. It could start by putting off the water tap when you drink water or whatever. Whatever it is, no 
small action is too small not to be taken. Whatever you can do in the sphere of your influence, do it. Tell others to do it. So if you can amplify, we have all this social media, all these friends, networks, this, that. If one person tells 10 other people and each of those 10 tells 10 other people, you see where this is going. Then collectively, we really can have a much bigger impact. So whether you're a scientist who can figure out how to suck carbon out of the air or whether you are just a regular person who might be willing to take his or her shopping bag to the store, just do it. And those small actions will definitely add up to make a big difference. And you'll feel better about yourself. So that's the icing on the cake. That's a non-trivial icing on the cake, I would say. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. CB was in Germany. It's where your journey had begun. You were there with the world. Wildlife fun. When you heard the 2% number, it made you sick. You said, oh my God, the effect will be cataclysmic. You teach so people can increase their ability and wake your students up about sustainability. You feel people need to engage. Of that you do insist because we are facing an existential crisis. Maybe customer, but employees are certainly merry. You learn that when you talk to Ben from Ben and Jerry, it might have been a setback, but it was also a wake-up call. We have to find a way to get ahead of the eight ball. You're proud that you're back on your bike, a personal fight of your own. And for your wife's 50th birthday, you played the saxophone. You certainly made me a believer when you talked about Paul Pullman, the CEO of Unilever. We have to make sure there's no exception because then everybody will be one. That's the deception. We will still exist. We will still persist. But of course, that's coming from you, an eternal optimist. Any action you can take, even small, a big difference can make and tell 10 others it will be icing on the cake. Bravo. You just, how did you do, do that? Unbelievable. That was amazing. CB and I talked a little about his saxophone playing skill, but I found out later about his affinity for cooking Asian-inspired spicy dishes and savoring fine single malts with friends. Both passions of mine as well. Perhaps I can get him to be a guest on Cravat Attack, where my two brothers, myself, and a new guest each episode rate hot sauces on YouTube. CB, let me know. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, Visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Professor Bhattacharya talked about the importance of talking to others about making small changes to make an even bigger difference. And companies that create the conditions for their senior leaders, middle managers, and employees to feel a sense of ownership for social and environmental issues, benefit from a happier, more productive workforce, increased loyalty, higher stock valuations, and greater long-term profits. By communicating these concepts to future business leaders through his teaching, his book, and podcast, CB is helping thousands of people that will help thousands of others to psychologically own helping 
to mitigate climate change.